Good morning, everybody. It's great to be on here with you. Um, please bear with me as I get used to preaching to an audience of one, that being me. Every time I look at the screen, I see myself. So let's hope I don't fall asleep. Um, let's hope I get lots of nods of agreement, lots of amens from my audience today. Uh, let's open in a word of prayer now. So you go. Lord, we thank you that we can gather together uh, during these difficult days to worship you, to recognize you as our Savior, to recognize the hope that we have in you. God, and I just pray now as we open your word that uh, by your spirit, you would lead us and guide us and teach us. Amen. Earlier in the service, uh, you watched the video. Today is Palm Sunday, and uh, you watched the video about Palm Sunday from the uh, Matthew's account. And um, if you didn't, most of us who've been in the church know a little bit about the story. Uh, we know from John's Gospel that this crowd of uh, followers, disciples, came with Jesus from Bethany. Uh, they had been there to see uh, Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. And now they're heading down towards Jerusalem. Jesus sends two disciples ahead. They get this donkey. Without any questions asked, uh, Jesus rides on the donkey and comes along. And as he's doing that, people start to throw down their cloaks and their branches on the ground and worship and start to praise him. And his disciples start to, to, to yell these things out. Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. And they call him the king of Israel. Right? And as we gather today, we affirm these praises. Right? This is truth. It is indeed a triumphal entry. Right? Hosanna literally means save now. And they, so they recognized Jesus as their savior that day, and they recognized him as their Messiah. In the midst of all this praise and celebration, though, we find Jesus, as he gets close to Jerusalem, he stops and he weeps for the city. And he's, you know, what's going on? Jesus, what's going on? Everybody else is, worship, is excited for this day and at this time. What's the problem, right? So Jesus is weeping for the city's spiritual blindness because they didn't really understand who he was. They had been waiting for a Messiah who was going to come and overthrow their oppressors, right? They wanted to be free politically. They wanted this Messiah to come in to restore the nation of Israel. They wanted him to establish an earthly kingdom and to bring them peace. But they really didn't know what would bring them peace. Jesus was much more concerned with bringing them spiritual freedom and salvation. So as he rides into Jerusalem, as he's made, he's made a decision that's what he's going to do. That he knows he's coming to face death. He knew that his time had come. In hindsight, it's easy for us to call this day triumphant. We talk about this as the triumphal entry because we know that Jesus was heading to the cross and he was going to defeat you know, sin and death. But for people who were there that day, many of them would have been disappointed. Right? Less than a week later, their conquering king would be accused of blasphemy. And he would be beaten and bloodied. He would have been encountered with the criminals and hung on a cross. Some of the same people who had called Hosanna, Hosanna, and they called him King of Israel, were now calling crucify him. So on Palm Sunday, we echo the cries of these people, you know, who recognize Jesus as the Messiah, as their savior, and we worship him too. 
But I think we can take a lesson and should take a lesson from the followers, some of these followers there that day. Have you ever been disappointed with Jesus, with God? Have you ever wondered what he's doing in your life? Have you had to readjust your expectations of him? Here are some common expectations that we have of Jesus. All that are true, but may not manifest in our lives in the way that we think they should. First is a conqueror, deliverer. We want Jesus to, to defeat every, our enemies, right? But he doesn't always do that. He doesn't always rid us of our enemies or take away our problems. Sometimes we look to him for healing, and he is a healer. But he doesn't always heal us, and he doesn't always heal our loved ones. We look to him to provide for us, and he does. But that doesn't mean we're not we're going to always live comfortably, or we're going to be free of financial worries or concerns. And we look to him to be a liberator. But that doesn't mean we're going to escape injustice, or that we're always going to be treated fairly in our lives, right? And so we have to watch how we look at Jesus and what we expect from him. So I try to relate to that. Uh, think about times in my life where I've been disappointed with God or confused by what he's doing. Uh, I think back to an accident that I had on February 5th, 2003. I was driving for work that morning. Uh, it was a sunny morning, 9 o'clock. I came to an intersection, driving through. I hit a pedestrian, and, and he was killed. The immediate reaction that I had that day was of shock, of guilt, of fear, and confusion. In shock, What's going on? I was disoriented. I didn't even, I couldn't even make sense of it. Fear, guilt. What am I doing? I didn't, what did I do? You second guess everything that you did. Why didn't I stop? What could I have done differently? A fear. What's going to happen now? Am I going to go to jail? What about my family, my kids? And of confusion. God, this wasn't in the plans. This is what I thought was going to happen. Why is this happening to me? Why is it happening at all? Right. And that impacted my life beyond that day. Those were my initial reactions, and they lasted for a while. Uh, however, in the months and uh, years to come, we faced legal issues, first with the police, and then there was a lawsuit. And then there was issues with my own insurance, where my insurance rates went really high. And it took a toll on my family. It took a toll on my life. And it really challenged my sense of who God was and what he was doing. Like the people in Israel, in Jerusalem that day, who were looking for a conquering king, sometimes we want to see Jesus as the person who alleviates our immediate concerns. Man, our fears and our, so the circumstances of our lives can sometimes drive us towards faulty ideas and expectations about who God is, who Christ is. So this week leading into Easter, uh, as you probably already know, we are going to be looking at the seven I Am statements from the book of John. And I hope that as we do that, we'll have a better sense of who Jesus is. A reminder of where our peace comes from, where our hope really lies. Of course, these I Am statements uh, remind us of the Old Testament, of God's conversation with, uh, with Moses. I am who I am, he says. I am is a name for God. But there is, in the Gospel of John, these are declarations that Jesus makes about himself. And so it's important that we pay attention to these things. Today we're going to be looking at John 14, verses 1 through 14. And so if you want to open your Bibles at this point, uh, that would be great. We're going to be looking at verse 6 
as that's where the I am statement is. Um, it says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This passage falls into a portion of scripture called the Upper Room Discourse or the Farewell Discourse. And it's uh, Jesus talking to his disciples the day that night that he's arrested. I think it's a really encouraging passage. I've thoroughly enjoyed reading it and go back to it regularly uh, in my life. I just think it's an encouragement for all believers. The main idea, I'll give it to you right now. Uh, the main idea of, the sermon, of my sermon is this. Jesus is our only hope in times of trouble. To make it simpler, just say this. Jesus is our only hope. But before we get into the passage, I want to take a look at the context. In the context, and this is really a backdrop of fear, of anxiety. The disciples are worried. They're upset. Their life is in turmoil. Their world is in turmoil. And that is because in chapter 13, Jesus has just told them that one of the disciples is going to betray him. Then he tells them that he's going away, and where he's going they can't follow. And then he predicts that Peter will deny him three times within the next few hours. It's enough to make anybody question things, right? One of the one of their brothers is going to deny, going to betray him. Peter, their kind of one of their strongest leaders, is going to deny Christ, and then he's going to go away, and we can't follow him. They were afraid. They were afraid of being abandoned. Not knowing where to go, they were lost. They helped follow Jesus for three years at this point. What was next? Where do they go? And what was this whole thing all about? Was it all a waste of time? They had given up so much. What was that all for? Right? When I was back at uh, Tyndale, I took a counseling course. And uh, the text we used was a Larry Crabb book. He was a prominent uh, counselor back in the 90s. And uh, one thing that I remember that he always said was that every person has two basic emotional needs, the need for security and the need for significance. The need for security has to do with our need for acceptance, you know, a need to be to belong. The need for significance has to do with our sense of adequacy, has more to do with, you know, meaning in our lives, our purpose, our mission, knowing that we contribute something. And Crabb says that these are the driving forces in all counseling. If I look at the disciples right now, they're looking for security and they're looking for significance. Right? They're pretty needy right now. They could probably use some counseling. Think about what they're going through, you know. They're looking to Jesus. What what you know, where are you gonna go? You're abandoning us. We need you. And what's going on? What have we given our lives to? What's the mission that we've given? Is it for nothing? Right? They want to know that they hadn't wasted their time. Right? All of us can relate to these things. So Jesus' response to that, as in this backdrop of anxiety and worry, that's what we start in chapter 14. So I want to read the first four verses, if you'll just read along with me in your Bibles. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. 
And the key verse in this to me, what stuck out to me as I read it, is the very first verse. And actually, it's just the first phrase. Jesus gives this command, do not let your hearts be troubled. Troubled, what he means is unsettled. Don't let your heart be unsettled. Don't let it be stirred up. Don't let it be confused, right? This could be translated another way, pretty much stop stressing out, right? As a pastor in the U.S., his name's Skip Heitzig. I'd never heard of him before I prepared this sermon. But he said something I really liked, and so I thought I should share him, and I should give him some credit for saying it. Um, but he says that Jesus wouldn't ask us to do something that was impossible for us to do. So when Jesus gives us a command, it means that we are actually able to do it. We can do it with the Spirit's help, right? So what he's saying here is that Jesus is telling us not to let our hearts be troubled, that we can control our emotions. We can control those feelings, right? We don't need to be ruled by them. And I think there's quite a great bit of hope in that, right? This isn't a heartless command either. I think as you read the language around it, and you see how Jesus talks to his disciples, you, you can see that he's striving to assure them, right? Believe in God, believe also in me. He's saying, just trust in me like you trust in God, right? And he kind of speaks to them like parents speak to kids, that's kind of the sense you get from it. Like when you're putting your kids to bed, you know? Don't worry, I'll be right down the hall. I'm going to leave the light on just for a short time, right? Or when you're dropping your kids off at school for the first time. You know, don't worry, I'll be back soon. That's kind of the tone. He wants to make sure. He wants to, uh, that they know that he's, he's there for them, right? He also speaks about preparing a place for them. And what he's referring to here is that he's going to the cross, the work that he's going to do on the cross, right? His death and resurrection. Without that, they can't follow him. They can't come. They can't uh, join him. They won't have entrance into heaven, right? And that hits, what hits me here, too, is that in the midst of his most troubling night, he's going to the cross, and he knows it. But in the midst of that, he still cares and wants to comfort those that he loves. Matthew 26 shows us Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane as he's pleading with God to take the you know, cup maybe taken from him. And in verse 38, he says this, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. So when Jesus tells his disciples, do not let your hearts be troubled, this isn't some flippant, easy promise. You know, don't worry, guys, I got this. I'm the son of God. This is a heartfelt, you know, weighty thing that he says. He understands these emotions. He's going through them himself, right? He's experienced it too. All of us have had these experiences in life where our hearts have been troubled. Health concerns, financial concerns, relationships, vocation. Maybe we felt you felt like God has abandoned you. But like the disciples, we need to understand in these times that our Savior understands us, he understands our fears and our troubles because he went through it himself. I certainly did. When I went through that car accident, it was amazing to have people around me, family and friends, who reminded me of this truth, encouraging me that way. As I was looking at this passage and beginning to look at it, uh, the first week that I did was the week of the NBA cancellations, the NHL canceled its games. The school boards are talking about closing. And, uh, you know, I was thinking, I read this passage and I said, wow, that's a really, you know, great passage in light of COVID-19. And I thought, ah, you know what, like many people, I thought, ah, it'll be over by that time. But here we are, these many weeks later, and this is a concern that all of us share. But I think as believers, we need to hold on to this command. 
you know, do not let your hearts be troubled. God wants us to trust in him. Without diminishing the real emotions that people feel, the fears that they have, we need to trust in this because it's our testimony to the world of the hope that we have in Christ. So as we move on in the passage, Jesus continues to reassure his disciples. Um, you know, I remember I had talked about those two things that Larry Crabb said that are, are essential human, you know, for human needs, emotional needs. One is security and the other is significance. And as I look at this passage, as I looked it over, I really do think Jesus addresses both of those things in the coming verses. But first he addresses the, the, the need for security. Security has to do with acceptance. Like I said before, when our lives are turned upside down, we often feel insecure. Um, you know, or we feel like our supports are gone, the people around us. We feel disconnected and we're unsure where we belong. Right? In the, these coming verses, Jesus offers himself as the only answer. So let's read along in verse 5 and 6. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So to Thomas's question, Jesus says, I am the only answer. Right? Once again, he's calling his disciples to trust in him. To take a closer look at what he says. First, he says, I am the way. So to the disciples who are lost, he provides direction. Thomas's question, how can we know the way? He's looking for something very concrete. It's like if you ask me, how do I get to MCBC from your house? I would say, okay, you go to the end of the street, you turn left, come up to the other street, you turn right, go through two stop signs. When you get to the street light, turn left, you know, so on and so forth. That's what Thomas is looking for. Tell me, you know, exactly where I need to go, exactly what I need to do to get there. But Jesus isn't doing that. He says, instead, come with me. I am the way. Come with me. It's like, here I am. How do I know the way? I am the way. Jesus points to a spiritual reality. Follow me. Follow my example is what he's saying. But he doesn't just point us to the way. He is the way. Then he's on the journey with us. There's more comfort in that too, right? He's the destination, he's the direction, and he's the mode of transport. He's all of those three things. To the truth, to the disciples who are confused, who might not know up from down, he provides truth. John 1.14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the Son, only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus was the truth. In the Palm Sunday story that we just looked at, the Pharisees asked Jesus at one point to tell his disciples to be quiet, right? And Jesus' response to them was, if they don't, the rocks will, if they stop, the rocks will cry out. What he's really saying is the truth can't be hidden. It is what it is. I am the truth. So you can know true facts about something, but not really know the truth. I can know facts about how to do ballet. I can know different moves, triple sow cow. Maybe that's figure skating, I don't know. Uh, we'll go with figure skating. I don't know anything about that either. But I don't know, you don't know, I don't know anything about that, but I could find out details, but I still aren't able to do it. You're not gonna see me out there doing you know, ballet moves. 
So I don't really understand it fully. I don't know the truth of what it is to do ballet, but I know I can know facts about it. The truth is not a series of propositions to be grasped necessarily, but it's a purpose to be received, right? To be known. Jesus perfectly embodies the truth. Other people might make true statements. Other faiths do make true statements. But Jesus is the truth. Ultimately, as the Messiah, he is the perfect revelation of God. He is the perfect revelation of the truth. And then the life, the way, the truth, and the life. To the disciples who were feeling lifeless, he provides life. Not just any life. He provides fullness of life. He provides eternal life. Without him is darkness and death and confusion. Right. Ephesians 2.5 Paul says that God has made us alive together with Christ. He brings us life. John 10.10, Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and they may have it to the full. David Platt, speaker and pastor, says he describes it like this. Radical obedience to Christ is not easy. It's not comfort, not health, not wealth, not prosperity in this world. Radical obedience to Christ risks losing all these things. But in the end, such risks find its reward in Christ, and he is more than enough for us. Living for Christ means we take risks. It doesn't mean it's easy. But he's more than enough for us. In spite of our fears and all the circumstances that we are in, we can have fullness of life in Christ. So as you think about this too, and how the disciples would have heard these words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is actually challenging a Jewish way of thinking. See, from the way that they were raised, from their mindset, the only way to get to God was through the law. Following the law completely. The truth. If you want to know the truth, you find it in the law. And the life. Your life was wrapped up in the law and following it. It was completely dictated everything that you did, right? It gave meaning to your existence. It framed your world, right? With the law, though, there was this sense of striving that may, maybe even control that you could, you know, work your way towards God. Jesus says here, you're not in control. Stop striving. Rest in me. I have met the requirements of the law for you, right? This statement is, a, is an acknowledgement that he is the Christ, you either believe him or you don't. You know, there's no middle ground anymore. This is a controversial statement because it's an exclusive claim. Even in the language itself, we have the use of the definite article, the, I am the way, the truth, the life. Right? It's not a way, a truth, a life. And then the last part of the, sentence, of the verse, no one comes to the Father except through me. Right? There is no other option. Jesus is encouraging his disciples with this truth, right? Because they have access to him, right? He's the way, the truth, and the life. That's an amazing assurance. He's basically saying, I am the only way, and you know me. You belong to me. Underlying all that truth, he's also trying to convince the disciples that knowing the Son is the same as knowing the Father. Let's take a look at verses 7 to 11. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. It's almost as if Philip hasn't heard Jesus talking here. 
Jesus says, from now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip right away says, show us the Father, and that'll be enough. He's not understanding. He's not getting it. And Jesus' disappointment is clear as we move on. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe in me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. And Jesus here is reiterating the intimacy that he has with the Father. And he points to the miracles as part of the evidence for that. But he tells Philip, at least believe on this. He had expected that Philip would know him better because they had spent so much time together. That they knew each other and had spent three years with each other. And he's disappointed in him. You see, the miracles were things that everybody saw. right? The crowd on uh, Palm Sunday had seen miracles. The crowd, he said, yelled, crucify him, had seen miracles. But these disciples, they had seen him and known him and worked with him so closely over three years, Jesus was hoping for a closer relationship and more intimacy. You know, we can know things about you, each other at church, but the people who live with you at home, they know you better. They know the weird things about you that make you you, that make you part of their family, that clan. And that's the kind of thing Jesus is looking for, right? He wants to have an intimate relationship with us. He wants us to know him without question, to know and understand him. And we see that as we read down in verse 20. You don't have to look down there, but it says here, On that day you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Jesus is inviting us into the relationship that he has with the Father. He wants to know us that well and be that close to us and that intimate with us, right? This is done when we believe and we are filled with the Spirit, right? And that's just an amazing, amazing truth for us as Christians, that we have that kind of acceptance, that kind of assurance, right? Jesus has definitely answered the need for security. And as we move on in the passage, I think that we see Jesus begin to deal with the issue of significance. Significance, if you remember, the need for significance, as Crabbe describes it, is a need for adequacy, to feel that you have something to offer. It's about mission in life, purpose. It's about meaning in life. The disciples were definitely struggling with it at this point. You know, Jesus had said, I'm going away. You can't follow me. I have a denier and they have a betrayer in their midst. Right? So as we come to the end, Jesus works on encouraging them. He says this, verses 12 to 14. Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask for anything in my name, and I will do it. To the an- to answer the question of significance, Jesus says, whoever believes continues to the work of Christ. Right? If you accept Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life, then you're going to be able to do even greater things than what he did. Right? He's telling us the mission continues through us through them. He was telling them it continued through them. The work wasn't done. So for all their questions about what comes next, he says there's more to be done. And he promises that they will do even greater things. 
And I don't know about you, when I hear greater things, sometimes I question it. You know, I've never healed sick. I've never raised somebody from the dead. I've never walked on water. I'm not so sure that the greater things necessarily means the magnitude and power of the miracle, of the works. Maybe the extent and the number. Maybe as this church grew, right? Pentecost Sunday, 3,000 were added to their number. And throughout history, the church has grown and spread all over the world. And it continues to grow and spread now. Even though we may not see it, North America and Canada, it's happening in the Southern Hemisphere, Asia, Africa, South America, they're seeing growth. Christianity Today in 2015 published this stat that 33,000 Christians are added to the church in Africa by conversion or by birth. It's a lot of people. Other miracles are great, but the greatest miracle of all is a changed soul, a changed heart, a heart that's in, that turned towards Christ, to his grace. The other miracles happen to bring people to that point. Right? Jesus is giving us a mission here. The Great Commission starts here. I'm going to the Father. You continue to do what I was doing before. I'm the way, the truth, and life is an encouragement and a challenge. Right? How does it happen? We're going to have to leave our text and go down a little bit here. But Jesus doesn't leave us alone. He gives us the Holy Spirit. He's our comforter and our guide. Verses 16 and 17. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost and fills these followers with boldness. Like I've just said, 3,000 were added that day. Right? They had boldness when they were scared. They had comfort when they were sad. The Spirit moved in them in miraculous ways. Providing them with all the things that they needed. And verse 20 again says this, On that day you will realize that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Jesus is not leaving us alone for this mission. He wants us to be part of the mission that he's already been a part of, that was started by him. It continues to this day. So whenever we struggle with, with a significance in our lives or questions of what we're doing, Jesus provides us with that answer here. You belong to me. You believe in me. You belong to me. And I've got work for you to do. You have a purpose and a mission. As the Spirit moves through the church, amazing things happen, right? In the world, that's always been the case throughout history. I'm always amazed as I look at the lives of the disciples, the same people who struggled to understand such basic things, basic teachings of Christ, the way that God worked in their lives, empowered them by His Spirit to do these amazing, incredible things. Eventually, they did trust in Him that He was the way, the truth, and the life. Many of them were martyred. Tradition tells us that all of them were martyred, except for John. Whether that's true or not, all of them faced persecution, right? Jesus didn't promise an easy life, but he did promise that if we follow him, we'll find eternal life, that we'll know peace in the midst of calamity. As we seek first his kingdom, we don't need to be worried. We don't need to be anxious. 
because we know that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And God has put us in this place, just like Esther, you know, for such a time as this. God has put us here to minister and to, to work for his kingdom. The mission still goes on. In the midst of COVID-19, the mission of the gospel still goes on. How? We need to be creative with it. But ultimately, we need to make sure that people realize that Jesus is the only hope. Right? No matter what troubles come our way. So on this Palm Sunday, we recognize that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And we look forward to the day when his glory will be fully revealed. I want to read this passage to conclude from Revelation 7. I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no man could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits upon the throne. The mission goes on, doesn't it? Let's pray. God, on Palm Sunday, Lord, we echo the praise of your followers that day who recognized you as their Savior, as their Messiah. God, help us to live with a clear understanding of who you are. You are the way, the truth, and the life. Lord, help us to live in that reality, no matter what our circumstances are. Lord, help us to live in your hope and to show that to the world. Amen.